You are listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community, with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. I'm Mary Jane Laurie, and in this episode, I speak to Kirsten Williams. Coming up on today's episode. My advice for anybody is just get back up, just give yourself a talking to and just go again, because it, it can be really disheartening to get that knock back. But in 2013, we were lucky enough to get a tenancy through the Forestry Commission on their Starter Farm Tenancy Initiative. Kirsten is a livestock specialist with SAC Consulting, and she also runs a farm business on Rana Farm in Aberdeenshire with her husband Ross. They have sheep, cattle and a turkey enterprise on their rented farm. They were new entrants working hard to secure a tenancy and build up their business to support them and their family. Kirsten has a really positive outlook on life and she tells us how determination and hard work have helped them to succeed. Hi Kirsten, thanks for joining us today. This is the the final episode of season two of Agriculture and we've uh, saved the best to last. Thank you for inviting me. Can you start in telling us a bit about your background? Are you from a farming family? Yeah, so I've, I've been born and raised into farming. My dad, he's been a farm manager for, for all his days. So yeah, since since being small, farming has very much been part of, of the blood and the, the daily routine. Having grown up in a farming sort of community, did you go on and study agriculture? Yeah, when I finished school, I actually first off went to college to be a veterinary nurse. And it was it was at the same time that Rolf Harris did his TV show about vets and everybody wanted to be a vet nurse. <laughs> so the career prospects weren't just looking overly open at that point. I went back to college and studied at Ochenkruv. Uh, I did four years there and it was agricultural science that I did at Ochenkruv. Your dreams of being a vet nurse maybe weren't going to be realised uh, due to the number of people that were taking up that role. So what sort of job did you want to, to take on after college? It was largely large animals, given my background of living on a farm and everything else that I wanted to get into vet nursing for. There was jobs, but a lot of them were small animal focused and that just really wasn't my driver. So mm-hmm. going back to college and doing ag science was to try and get more onto the kind of agricultural side. And when I first started, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the end of it. After the the four years, I actually did a, a small kind of contract selling cattle wormers, and I sold cattle wormers in a, in a short contract over housing period for a large pharmaceutical company. And then after that, I started with SEC. So with SEC, I started as a trainee consultant and then kind of moved up over the years from trainee to consultant then I moved over to the the specialist teams probably about 10 years ago. When you were a trainee consultant involved in all sorts of aspects of agriculture were you at that point? Indeed I was brought up over by Abby Moore so it was it was quite hill focused it's very beef and sheep and when I was placed into an office, I was placed to Tariff. So Tariff is very mixed in that you've got arable in the mix as well. And it was it was a great way to, I would say, to, to start my career in that I was exposed to every type of agriculture and every type of rural businesses. It was diversified businesses, it was big business, small business. And um, it really made you have to keep learning. The likes of I did facts, I did basis, the qualifications that go with crops which was all very new to me given that in Abbey Moor we don't have a lot of crops at all no. so uh, no, it's a good starting point. And so tell us about your current role at SAC Consulting now. 
my current role at SEC is massively varied. There's no two days the same. So I'm a beef and sheep consultant in the livestock team, and I also lead the livestock team as well. There's 10 of us in our team. We are distributed from the north of Scotland to the north of England to Ireland. So we're well <laughs> spread across. And our remit is largely it's knowledge transfer. So it's it's assisting farmers with beef, sheep, nutrition, anything really that involves the technical aspects of livestock production. Livestock farming at the moment, what would you say are the main opportunities in the sector at the moment for farmers? I am a complete and utter opportunist, I think. Mm-hmm. And I always like to see the positive. And I think it's it's quite an interesting time given that we have got ag inflation, we've got interest rates as high as they've ever been, we've got a lot of new new policies getting spoken about, a lot of insecurity I would say within the industry. You see that there's the size of the national herd is going down, uh, there's a lot of changes within like say, the pig and poultry sector. I just feel that there's opportunities that are coming because our customer is starting to have more kind of environmental considerations when they're when they're buying their food. Thinking about air miles, thinking about where their food comes from, how is their food actually produced? And there's so much of Scotland that is only suitable for producing livestock on. And how we manage that, if we don't manage that land as food producers or as land managers, the land will, won't be as beautiful and people won't come to Scotland. We won't have the same level of tourists. And I really feel that the livestock sector is at a real turning point to really shout about what we do and how we enhance Scotland and where food comes from and how it's produced. Again, I've been an opportunist here. There's definitely downsides as well, but I think the more that we can tell our story, show what we're producing, how we're producing it, and why we stand out as producers. I think you're right. There's a lot of um, sort of negative press at the moment. And as you say, a lot of political uncertainty and uncertainty with subsidies and consumer pressure. And I think farmers probably do feel all that pressure coming directly to them as, as you know, as, as the producers. It's refreshing to hear someone with a positive outlook and presumably spreading that message to farmers that there are these great opportunities to shout about what they're doing well. Yeah. And we do do well in this country. We have to be realistic as well in that I started off that, that saying that we've got ag inflation as high as it's been, our interest rates are, are high. There is a lot of challenges in the sector and it's it's great to look at it in rose-tinted glasses and, and everything else, but we do have some really challenging times ahead of us as well. And it's just thinking how we can gear ourselves up or how we can build in the resilience or think slightly different to really be ready for these challenges. For instance, if basic payment, the future of that, that drops down significantly. There's a lot of businesses are really on the the brink financially. So it's just trying to think differently, increasing output, reducing costs, looking at how we manage our grass better. There is a lot of challenges as well as opportunities. So what sort of advice are you mostly given at the moment then, given those those challenges? It's an interesting question because we cover the whole of Scotland and what advice we might be giving to a hill producer at the minute will be different from what we're talking to a lowland producer. And within that scenario of hill to lowland, 
a big part of current advice is thinking about collaboration. To know that thinking yeah. about making sure that you're taking the animal to the feed rather than the feed to the animal. That type of, of instance, you've got more and more people that are grazing off like winter crops. They'll be bringing lambs down from the hill to graze winter crops in the east or from areas that they don't have buildings and straw. They'll be moving their store cattle to the east, that type of thing. And it's just trying to think about what natural assets that you have in the land. So is it that wintering is actually more suited and more cost effective? And it's every farm's different. So it's I wouldn't say it's just this is our main bit of advice at the minute. It's it's thinking actually how how to increase output but control costs at the same aspect. I think that's right. I'm based in the, the east as well at Edinburgh and um obviously working across the Lothians, but we've we're seeing a lot more of our clients farmers in the area taking in store cattle from the west and it benefits arable businesses as well and there's something about that sort of nice circular story of bringing free nutrients from the cow to these arable farms who are then benefiting from the muck that they can apply to their soil and it boosts soil health and all those things as well of course. Absolutely and there's there's a lot of buzzwords isn't there there's always a buzzword but your sustainability your regenerative and and I guess it is that kind of circular economy, isn't it? It's yeah. it's seeing where you've got a, a deficiency, so say it's organic matter in the soil or something, and and where you can bring that from that's still within the the same cycle. So likes of bringing that that muck or that golden hoof, as as we would call it, onto the the animal farms, and it, it's a win win for everybody. Absolutely. So, what do you enjoy most about your job, Kirsten? Like I said, it's so varied. Like in a day, I can be talking to farmers I can be doing a podcast like this doing a webinar it is it's so varied but the the thing that really gets me is making a difference and just helping somebody or or making a, a change that then has a really good impact on their on their business but then on themselves as well and so it might be that it's something like I don't know at lambing time there's there's a key issue within a farm and I can go in and try and help them. And then when you get that feedback after lambing that it's been so much better or or that that advice has changed the way for the better, then that's, that's what really gets me. So outside of your job at SAC, you also run a farm with your husband. And I gather you were new entrant farmers. How did that opportunity to farm together come about? I think I'm a bit old now to be called a new entrant. It hurts me to say that. It really does. Um, I'm from over by Aviemore. My husband, he actually is from down in Somerset. We met at college at Ochenkruve. And then I had a small flock of sheep and he had a small flock of sheep. So after college, we went into the big world and got jobs. We had about 20 sheep between us. And we just rented seasonal grazings. And having sheep is an actual obsession and you can't just have 20 you then have to (laughs) you have to grow and you have to do more and over quite a short period of time we accumulated quite a lot more and we're all pedigree we lived in a in a house in the middle of a town and, and just rented land not ideal in that you've got no security it's pretty yeah. much six months at a time and you didn't know where, where you were going after that it was pretty stressful to be honest at, at times and the, the goal was always to try and get some sort of security ideally it would be a tenancy because we didn't have money to to buy we applied for quite a few tenancies 
we got to the interview stage, we got to that really, this is us, it's going to be us this time. And then that kind of knock back, Mm. which my advice for anybody is just get back up, just give yourself a talking to and just go again, because it, it can be really disheartening to get that knock back. But in 2013, we were lucky enough to get a tenancy through the Forestry Commission on their Starter Farm Tenancy Initiative farm. We farmed at a farm at Huntley in Aberdeenshire. It was 120 acres on a 10-year tenancy. That was our kind of real breakthrough to getting some sort of security. But we always kind of knew it was a 10-year So we're always thinking of an exit strategy. So for us, we got in in 2013. If we were still there 10 years at 2023, which is obviously now, for us, it would be a failure because that was kind of what we had built it to, like 10 years and we need to to go somewhere else. And uh, we were very lucky in 2021, we had applied for a different tenancy and we were successful in gaining it. So it's a bigger farm again. It's 550 acres and it's just let us grow and have a bit more security as well. That's quite a big step up going from your 20 sheep to your 100 odd acres that you started with, with your sort of starter farm up to 500. Now you must feel like just overjoyed that you've come all that way just in 10 years. That's a big step. A bit longer than 10 years because 10 years would have been when we got into Upper Tullock Beg. So when okay. we when we first formed the 20 sheep that was 2006 it's been quite a journey yeah <laughs> it's been quite a journey yeah I suppose you've summarized it nicely there in a few minutes but yeah, I suppose if you think it's been 17 years or whatever it's been then it's it's a long a long process so I'm sure you've probably faced quite a few challenges on the way what's been the biggest challenge as a new entrant new entrants the biggest challenges is is typically access to land yeah. and capital finding money so the access to land was a a massive barrier for us and like with the seasonal grazings there was no security you had nowhere to just keep your gates your trailers your stuff that you just needed having knowing where you're going to be lambing your sheep we're pedigree sheep we lamb some in january so you kind of need a shed in the north of scotland so it's yeah it's having having that know-how and and security and then for those tenancies that we were applying for that we were getting knocked back again it was constantly that access to land that that was a huge huge barrier when we we got into the farm at Huntley again we were constantly applying for for other farms and we weren't even getting to the, the interview process so it was it's really really downheartening and then like being able to to get the capital to buy to have a deposit it's just impossible. Yeah. So I would say that the access to land was was a, a massive, massive barrier for us. The finance side, do you know, we, we both kept our full-time jobs and we still have our full-time jobs now. And if it wasn't for the full-time jobs, I don't know how, how we would have the ability to invest in, in that type of thing. It's given us the security, but it's, it's also given the bank the security, I would say, yeah. as well, having yeah. having that. And then that's probably given us our third challenge in time, time management, when you're you're trying to juggle. We've got two girls as well, so trying to juggle family life, building a business, having full-time careers as well. I would say that's something that really 
still needs a bit of work done on it at the time management. <laughs> so my next question is why? <laughs> why do you do all that? Uh, you could just have your, your full-time jobs and just be you know comfortable and have time at the weekends. What is it about farming that keeps you wanting more and keeps driving you forward? Do you know, what would I do at the weekends though? Both of us have been born into farms. Neither of us would naturally succeed a farm. My dad's a farm manager. Ross's family, it's a very small farm. He's got quite a lot of siblings. It's just been there all of our lives that that's, you farm. (laughs) You farm and seeing the year through the cycle, isn't it? You just have a love for animals being brought up into it. And I honestly, I do not know what I would do in the evenings. I would probably sit on the sofa and watch TV or eat loads (laughs) or not be very healthy. (laughs) Whereas I know I've got loads to do at nights. It's great to just after you've had a day at work to just have an excuse to go outside have have other stuff to do to keep your mind active I would say it is a bit of an obsession as well I have to say I do think it's an obsession that that you always want to do better than the year before or you always want to sell that top for that big money you'll chase that maybe all your life trying to get to that sell for that amount or win a flock competition or it's just that constant drive to always want to do a bit better I think that's a healthy obsession to have as you say you could have a different obsession with some sort of box set or something but it's not quite the same as it as getting outside and it's a nice childhood for your children as well you sort of alluded there is a bit of a juggle I've got three small kids myself I, I know what it's like but how do you manage that the farm and the children and the work Probably terribly, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably terribly. Um, I think you spend most of your time being guilty that you're not giving one of the three things enough attention, to be honest. But there's just like, there's certain times of the year you just have to prioritise one over over the other type of thing. You know, like lambing time, the sheep have got to take the focus. You, you yeah. have to give your attention to the sheep. We produce turkeys for Christmas. So the run up to Christmas is completely mental, but you just have to make sure that I'm on annual leave from work, that I'm very lucky that my mum lives next door so that she's in place for looking after the children. Yeah, it's, it is. It's just, it's a, it's a juggle. It is. It's a juggle. It's it's probably winging it is probably the, the key to success in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. I feel the same at home a lot as well. But I think now your girls are a wee bit older than, than, than my boys, but they're getting to that age now where they can be involved and it's just a lovely way for them to, to work alongside their parents as well, especially with sheep. It's easier to have children involved when there's sheep on the farm because it's you know, safer for them to work with sheep than cattle or obviously on an arable farm. So it must be nice for them at lambing time to, to be out helping and feeding pet lambs and things. Yeah, we, we do quite a lot of, we do all the agricultural shows with, more so with our cattle, to be honest. We've got pedigree shorthorns okay. and my eldest daughter, she's 10, she just loves the cattle. So she goes around all the, all the shows and does all the young handlers and, and all the showing, the preparation of getting the animal ready, the the washing it, the turning it out, the halter training. It's all really good lessons for them of like being responsible, having time management, like being somewhere for a certain time. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of organisation, like have you got everything in the kist? I think it's just a nice way to, to really grow their confidence as well. 
and that they're meeting a lot of different people that are all within the industry. Let's say we go to the market on a Friday, she knows everybody. Like it's <laughs> it's quite it's quite nice, and it's almost yeah. like it's a it's a bit of a showing family, and that everybody looks out for them as well, which is quite nice. The little one though, she's she's only six, so she's not allowed near the cattle at yeah. present. She helps away with the the sheep quite the thing, and again enjoys doing the the young handlers with sheep and giving them a chance to they would talk to anybody about their livestock and it's it's nice that they get to, to talk and then they get a rosette and it, it just kind of encourages them that bit more as well yeah absolutely it sounds brilliant it sounds like they're future budding young farmers in the making as well which is brilliant <laughs> so you mentioned there about your sort of diversification which is the the turkeys and you were talking earlier as well about the, the struggle of being a new entrant and needing the cash flow was that was the diver- diversification born out of a need to have an extra income or was there assets on the farm that you're on that just particularly lended themselves to having turkeys why did you decide to go down that route there's there's a few probably we started off with sheep and then it was all our eggs were in one basket with with the sheep and when we didn't know what brexit meant if brexit was coming what was going to happen we just thought if something happened quite badly with the sheep industry or we couldn't trade with Europe or something, then what would be the future of our business? So we actually, at that point, we actually brought cattle. So we introduced a herd of blue greys and the kind of thinking that the, the pedigree sheep, quite high maintenance and quite high input, didn't have a lot of time. So something that was quite low input would work quite nicely. So, and they could be outwintered and and everything else so we introduced those and then it was like once we kind of got in the way of of the cattle and the sheep and they worked really really well together it was like oh we've got a bit of free time in the winter now it's dark at night it's what we're <laughs> going to do with ourselves yeah. we thought like we're paying a rent on a farm that that had sheds that the sheds will only really be being used for lambing time and not really anything else to be used now and again for likes of handling. We would finish our bulls out of the cattle, but they, they weren't using all the all the shed space. So we thought turkeys would actually be quite a nice way to use the asset we were paying for. But then, like you said, like kind of generate a bit of cash flow as well at a time that we weren't really getting cash flow. So we we introduced those. I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. And we've just grown them. We started with 60. The next year we doubled them to 120. We've just expanded and expanded with them. We now sell to various butcher shops, to farm shops. We're stocking a hotel. It's nice. It's it's really kind of grown arms and legs. It does make Christmas insane. Like, yeah, you don't, I can imagine. It does. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. But it's really rewarding as well because it's it's lovely when you everybody's happy on the twenty third and twenty fourth of December when they get their turkey and it doesn't yeah. it's it's infectious, isn't it? They work in really, really quite nicely with the kind of business model and it, it does it it brings in cash flow at a time of year when you wouldn't and it's utilising sheds at a time of year that we typically wouldn't because again we're we outwinter our cattle, we don't have a high reliance really on on buildings at all so I know nothing about turkey production it's obviously quite a niche area so what time of year do you get the turkeys and how long does it take and presumably you're fattening them and and are you processing them as well 
Yeah, so the, the turkeys, they come onto the farm in the summer and they're babies. So they're, they're quite high maintenance at, at the start and that they're day olds. So oh, wow. it's, it's having a lot of newborns to start off with. They need to be under real heat. So we have gas burners and everything else and they get checked kind of every couple of hours through the night for the, the first week to 10 days. So they're very much in a, a brooder environment. As they grow, they, they grow their feathers. They get a lot more kind of resilient to, just like a newborn baby, the older they get, they get more resilient to the, the build-up immunity and they, they get hardier, don't they? So after kind of five, six weeks, they come off the lights and then we adapt them into our free-range system. So they go into an open barn with a free range area as well. So they're they're closed in at night to keep them safe from predators uh, and then they run around through the, through the day. So that's them up until December. Like you say, we do the, the processing on, on farm on site. So it's from the day they arrive, they're fully grown and nurtured under our, our management through until when they, they go off oven ready. That's quite nice for customers that are coming to the farm that know that full story. So you, I didn't realise you got them as a day old. That's really young. So for customers to come and, and buy them and know that they've had that nice free range lifestyle with you and they know the family where they've come from. I think that sort of feeds into what we were talking about earlier about consumers wanting to know where their where their food comes from. That's it. And I think that's a really big thing. I guess the kind of limitation on it just now is is people's financial pressures that there's cheap food and there's quality food, isn't there? Yeah. And it's it's that telling the story of why quality should be invested into. I think the, the country's still in this kind of funny place that we've recovered from COVID, but since then there's been a lot of other stuff happen and that the energy price is going up and just the kind of where people are financially. But I think this kind of drive for understanding how the environment integrates with with farming and and how food is actually produced i, I think is is going to become more more and more important definitely absolutely and so we're recording this just the start of december so i'm guessing the next few weeks for you are going to be pretty manic yes yes i have got all my christmas shopping done it's oh, wrapped <laughs> wow because <laughs> if i don't nobody gets anything yeah <laughs> have to be ready prepared so through FAS, we do a lot of work with women in agriculture groups as well. I oversee the women in agriculture groups and we've, we've done online groups as well. The idea behind the women in agriculture work that we do through FAS is to provide a sort of welcoming space for women to come together and network and more, most importantly, learn the knowledge transfer aspect of what your work is about as well is important for these groups. How have you found being a woman in the agriculture industry? Do you know, it's a very interesting question, actually, because as a woman in agriculture, I have been, since the start, I've been in partnership with my husband. It's a 50-50% partnership. We haven't inherited anything. We're first generation, which I think actually makes us quite lucky because we make the rules in a way that <laughs> we don't have that kind of hierarchy of, I've always done it this way, do it this way. Like we've we've kind of done what we want. And it's very much that it's an open communication that should we do this? It's discussed. It's not one person just goes and does it. And our skill sets are quite different. So it's it's been quite nice. To, it's been quite easy to kind of divide 
who does what in a way. So the likes of I'll do all the all the cropping stuff and, and the farm we're in now, we now have arable crop, we've got an environmental scheme, we've got forage crops. My husband doesn't know anything about fertilizer and his face goes blank if you ask him anything to do with <laughs> crops. So naturally that's where I go. My husband, he works for a feed company. So nutrition, that type of thing is very much his side. Marketing of the turkeys, I'm better with people than he is. So, you know, it's kind of, it's split that we're very much a 50-50 divide. And I think being a first generation farmer has actually really assisted that in a way. I have never been treated differently for being being a woman in agriculture from somebody who's, who's a man in agriculture. I obviously, through working for SAC and BAS, I've spoken at a lot of women in agriculture meetings. And I always find them really refreshing to go to when you see people just really coming out of their shells. You know, like they'll come into the meeting in the morning and be a bit dubious of, oh, what's going to happen today? I'm not sure about coming along to this type of thing. And um, by the end of the day, you just see their, their confidence grow. You just see them kind of geared up, ready with the kind of ammunition that I'm going to go home and I'm going to change something because I've got the facts now, which I, I find really quite, yeah, it's, it's refreshing to see. I'd love to hear that what happens when they do go home <laughs> and what, what then happens. But yeah, I, I can't say I've been treated differently, but I know that everybody's got their own story and everybody's slightly different, aren't they? I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the being the new entrance and being able to make your own rules. There'll be a lot of women who have either married into a farm business or are a daughter within a business where there may be sons. And unfortunately, it's still the case that you know businesses are not always divided equally. And sometimes it's impossible to divide businesses equally because in reality, unless you sell the farm off, and divide money it often is completely impossible to divide businesses so I get that there's often situations where one or other family member might feel that they've not had equal chance or equal opportunity and sadly that is often the woman but I do think things are changing and as you were saying being a new entrant without any in-laws to argue with or parents to argue with it's nice just to be able to say well these are my strengths this is what I'm good at and this is what Ross is good at and we're going to stick to what we're good at and work together to build something together rather than trying to fit a mould of a previous business I think that's you've summarised that nicely there just hearing you talk about the women in agriculture groups that's lovely to hear that you feel there's a different atmosphere because that's what we strive to to try and do is is make them a sociable atmosphere because I think a lot of women will end up if there's an invitation comes out to a FAS meeting open to all that the women might end up staying at home if they're the ones with the young kids or there's school pickup to do or they've maybe got another job or maybe they've got you know calves to feed or whatever it is so having a women only specific event allows them well this invitation is for me so it's me that's going to go and it gives them that opportunity to get off the farm and learn something that they might not have otherwise had that chance. Do you think there's still a need for women in agriculture groups then or do you think things are changing from your experience? There's a lot of awareness isn't there there's there's a lot there's a lot of groups and every year I at the Highland Show I go along to the the women in agriculture breakfast I just I love going to it and that there's so many people to network with and you've got people from all over the industry so you've got your 
professionals. I have colleagues there. You have people you went to college with. Like, it's just a really nice, it's a nice kind of, I find it really inspiring and that the, the speakers come in. But when you're sitting around the table, speaking to people that you've never met before and hearing what they do, I always think it's one of those events that you can't, you can't leave without a smile on your face, either from meeting somebody that you've not seen for 10 years from college or that you've made a new network that you know that you can contact them and, and do business together or that somebody's completely inspired you to, I don't know, why are you marketing, marketing your turkeys like that when you, I do it like this? You know, so I, f- I find it a, a really nice space to be in for that. The likes of the fast meetings that we do on, on farms and such like, I think there's always a hunger for people to have more technical knowledge. Yeah. And if it's if people aren't comfortable to go to meetings when they're mixed, then absolutely there's there is a requirement for it. Really interesting to see the likes of the, the Scottish government's statistical survey that, that came out saying that there's more women in ag an astonishing number. I can't remember what the actual number is, but how many more women there is in ag now from when the survey was last carried out in twenty twenty one. And I think it's programmes like this that give women the confidence to maybe maybe they filled out the form and always in the past have said, Well, my husband's a farmer but now they see themselves more as a farmer. So I think as a as a confidence giver and with confidence, you have everything else that works in there, don't you? Like business efficiency largely comes in with confidence. People's well-being largely comes in with confidence. So I, th- I think there's definitely a, a place there for a safe place, maybe it's called. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, to be honest. But if we see such such a difference that an initiative like that is made, then why should it stop? Absolutely. I think my ultimate aim is that we don't need these groups anymore, that everyone has got that confidence to attend mixed meetings. And I hope we'll get there get there soon. But in the meantime, it's lovely to have these events that give women the confidence to maybe come to two or three women in ag and then see, oh, look, there's a meeting on fertiliser. I'm going to go to that. It's mixed gender, but I'm going to go because I've been to these women in ag ones and I've now got a bit more confidence. So finally then, Kirsten, what would your top tips for new entrants to agriculture be? Top tips, don't give up. Do you know, I think I think that would be the, the biggest one, don't give up, because there is knockbacks. You'll have the bank saying no, you'll have a landlord saying no. Just don't don't let yourself give up. I think it's it's easy just to back away and say, oh, it's, it's not working. But with every knockback, let the determination inside of you get stronger. Like you can, there's there's numerous stories and um, even like on the FAST website, there's there's case studies of new entrants that have gone forth and, and done. Yes, there's challenges. We've, we've talked about them, the likes of barriers to land, barriers of, of finance. But I think the, the true beauty with new entrant businesses is they're generally so, so resilient because they've, they've had these struggles, they've had the financial struggles that they just have to find another way to, to do it. And um, I, I think that don't give up and find an ulterior route. Have a plan B, C, D, E. Keep going until you get there and you succeed, definitely. That's a lovely note to finish on. Thank you, Kirsten, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. 
If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. If you'd like to read more about the Farm Advisory Service, Women in Agriculture groups, you can find a link in the show notes. This episode was presented by me, Mary Jane Laurie, produced by Kerry Hammond and edited by Ross McKenzie in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.